Queer Here, Queer There is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Ganyagahaga people, a site that has long served as a site of meeting and exchange amongst nations. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Queer Here, Queer There. I'm Noah, and just to give you a little bit more information about myself, if you missed out on the last episode in the introduction I gave, I'm a recent graduate from McGill University where I did a degree in urban studies and psychology, and now I'm currently working as a summer research fellow for the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. Uh, the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness is an emerging nonprofit that seeks to build a sense of community, connection, and belonging for all but especially for communities that have historically faced great challenges of isolation. So that includes queer people, as well as refugees, older people, indigenous groups, people with disabilities, and youth, to name a few. We do this by engaging in research partnerships to highlight community approaches and policy interventions to overcome social isolation, and by spearheading community events and advocacy to raise awareness about the manifestations of social isolation and what individuals can do to make a change. And so that's where this podcast comes in. Just to give everyone a heads up before I kind of dive into the main podcast, so same as last episode, this podcast primarily focuses on queer issues which can be sensitive or perhaps triggering to some people, and this podcast also discusses sex pretty freely, so keep that in mind if you're listening around kids. Just to give you a little bit of an introduction to this episode, last episode I recounted the history of queer spaces in the Montreal and kind of the Quebec area, basically leading up to the the modern formation of the village uh, as we know it today in Montreal. But there have been a lot of academic papers and mainstream media reports over the past, I would say, five or six years that cite the disappearance or the decline of gay villages or queer spaces just more generally. So this episode is going to have a broader scope, and we're just going to look at modern queer spaces and specifically the changes that are occurring to these spaces, the challenges that they're facing, what are driving these changes, so things like Grindr, and why these spaces remain increasingly important. And we're also going to be hearing snippets of conversations I've had with some of the experts so that I've mentioned previously, and let's dive in. So a gay village is an urban concentration of queer residents and or businesses that basically cater to them. So it includes things like bars, clubs, bookstores, retail stores, but it's also included some other things now in the definition, which includes LGBTQ-focused services, so things like community centers that offer specialty services towards the queer community, or health centers that are specifically focused towards the queer community as well. So whether that's things like PrEP or hormone therapy or any type of sexual health resources, especially for gay men, there's a lot of those. But a gay village is traditionally thought of being a queer space, but more broadly, a queer space is basically where queer identities are accepted and there is a higher degree of safety and security than non-queer spaces. Now, in the past 10 or so years, there has been a growing trend of LGBTQ businesses closing in gay villages and other queer spaces around the world. And this is what's led many academics and lay people to basically claim that gay villages are disappearing or some reports even say that they're dying altogether. And in Montreal, for instance, a CBC News piece ran that said village merchants losing out on business as gay people feel more welcome in other parts of the city. 
as well as blaming this shift on major cultural shifts in technology that have basically changed the neighborhood's makeup. And they quoted the owner of Sky, which is one of the largest club, uh, gay clubs here in Montreal in the village, and he basically has said that year-round business has dropped considerably since he bought the club in 1999, and he cited the particularly difficult winter months. And he hopes that basically the tourism in the summer will kind of boost that, but still, year-round business has dropped. And Overall, this isn't a phenomenon that is only felt in Montreal. So, for example, a report from the University College London published in 2017 found that the number of queer venues in London has fallen by close to 60%, from 125 to 53 since 2006. So in a 10-year period, it's dropped by close to 60%. And gay villages around the world are kind of facing these increasing threats of these closing venues. And there is a real question of whether gay villages and queer spaces more generally can actually survive into the future. And now the one thing that media kind of glosses over is that this isn't a new phenomenon. A recent epidemiology study found that the massive number of HIV AIDS deaths among urban gay males of the baby boom generation in North America, so obviously in the height of the epidemic in the 80s and the early 90s, it had a really, really powerful effect in the largest urban areas where we previously had these thriving gay neighborhoods that had developed and the epidemic really did contribute to the structural decline of these neighborhoods as literally a community fell apart. And while certain gay villages and neighborhoods certainly are in decline, specifically in the so-called global north, which is what this episode will mainly focus on, as that's what I am most experienced with, queer spaces in other, more socially conservative countries are actually growing or playing an increasingly important role as the countries become more socially liberal. So some prime examples are the Chapinero in Bogota, Colombia, or Shinjuku in Tokyo. Many people have blamed a bunch of different factors as responsible for the decline of queer spaces globally, but through my research and conversations, I've found that three main themes seem to emerge as the most commonly cited. So number one is the use of dating and hookup apps like Grindr or Tinder, gentrification, and the rising acceptance of LGBTQ people. That seems like a positive, but it is having a negative effect on queer spaces. So let's just dive in and we're going to start with the first one and this is the one that gets blamed the most and it's about basically how technology, specifically online dating and even more specifically how Grindr has really changed the queer community. And as part of my work this summer, I actually wrote a blog post about how Grindr kind of fits into this puzzle of how it's changed queer spaces. And I'll put that blog post in the notes of this episode, and it gives a good overview of the impacts of Grindr on the queer community. So first, a little introduction to Grindr. So Grindr is a geosocial, queer, male-centric dating and hookup app that has 4 million users in almost 200 countries. So the app primarily functions on geolocation, so basically your display picture is displayed on a grid of the closest 100 other profiles. And whenever I tell this to mainly my straight friends who have never even heard of Grindr, they think that that is like insane, the fact that you can see someone who is literally feet away from you. But your profile can also include things like a display title, a short bio, and more features like physical characteristics body types, your position, which is your sexual position in the gay community, ethnicity, relationship status, so if you're in an open relationship or single, anything like that, and also your tribes, which are basically labels that are based on subgroups in the queer community, as well as what they're looking for on the app. So whether that's dating or networking or chatting or just kind of the one-time thing. 
But the app does kind of present itself as a meat market of people looking for quick hookups. But really, many on the app do generally seek relationships, networking, and even just to make friends. And I'm scrolling through my grinder now, and there's kind of like a a one-to-one-to-one split between basically blank profiles, profiles where you can only see people's torso, and then basically just people's heads. So that kind of gives you a good breakdown of like what type of people are on the app and like what that kind of signals just based off of the pictures. But now a little bit more of some just some plain old stats. So a typical grinder user spends approximately up to two hours a day on the app. And over the past three years, daily grinder use has actually increased by 33%. And now here's where it gets a little bit more negative. There was a study that was released by the Center for Humane Technology, and it found that Grindr is the number one app that leaves users feeling unhappy. And among other dating apps, Grindr has the lowest rating on Apple's App Store. And for those wondering, the number one app that leaves users feeling happier is Calm, which is the meditation and mindfulness app. It's honestly pretty great. I would recommend it. It's really, really good if you've never even done mindfulness. This is not an ad. I wish it was. But basically, because of this, Grindr has actually been a target of a lot of research and media reports that basically single-handedly proportion most of the blame uh, on Grindr for everything from the disproportionate amount of depression and anxiety and loneliness that queer people face, but also on the disappearance of queer spaces. And the main thing that these reports claim is that because of Grindr, queer men, among others who use Grindr, it's not purely reserved for queer men, do not really need a physical location to meet any queer people anymore. And because of the huge scale and reach of Grindr, physical queer spaces have started to decline as a result. These reports also cite a lot of concerns with Grindr as now the number one way that queer men meet. And just to give a little bit more about that, 70% of queer relationships now start online and on apps. And everyone's really kind of so surprised when I talk about this, especially with my friends, because they're like, oh, you know, like dating's not that hard, but for queer people, it really is. And it's something that a lot of straight people or cis people don't really recognize, but truly just the act of meeting other queer people is really quite challenging. This has kind of, the whole research on Grindr and just hookup apps in generally, uh, generally has spurred a lot of academic research. So for instance, Stephen Cole, who's a professor of medicine, psychiatry, and biobehavioral sciences at UCLA, was quoted as saying that using hookup apps excessively could contribute to social isolation by substituting momentary, relatively anonymous, and shallow relationships for deeper, more sustaining intimacy. And he goes on to say that they're like empty calorie socialization, so basically fun snacks that ultimately are not deeply nutritious for our sense of belongingness and deep connection. They don't cause literal isolation, but instead promote brief relationships that may sometimes come to substitute for or even displace a deeper sense of connection to others. And I think that really makes sense. I mean, most of the time when I'm on Grindr or my friends are on Grindr and they're telling me stories, it really isn't for having deep connections with people. But also on the other end, it's because 70% of queer relationships now start online, it's like a lot of people feel like they don't have any other options to meet other queer people. And I spoke to Andrew London, who I've mentioned before, and he was an attorney and an author of the book Grindr Survivor, and he was quoted in a BBC article that was about the 10-year anniversary of Grindr. That's what initially prompted me to reach out to him, and in the article he describes the loss of community he feels apps such as Grindr have contributed to. 
So previously, uh, this is a quote, previously men of all ages, background, and body types would meet in bars and spend time together, but today you can select from an online catalog. And so when I spoke to Andrew, I asked him about Grindr and, and its effect on queer spaces, and here's what he had to say. It's kind of so obvious. It's like, oh yeah, like, well, can you, is rain wet? It's like, well, sure, you know, how do I analyze that? You know, obviously, for decades, if not centuries, I mean, again, I, I don't know the proper history of it, but the, the way that gay men or queer men met each other was to go to a gay bar or a gay-friendly, queer-friendly bar. And I freely admit, I mean, I think I put this in the book, like I, I was literally sitting at home and I was debating whether or not to go meet some friends or something like that. And I kind of, I don't know if I was already hungover, I was tired. For some reason, I just wasn't in the mood to go out. And it literally popped into my head um, it's like, oh, well, I could go to the club and, like, maybe see one or two guys that I think are cute. It's like, or I can stay home on the apps and, like, message 20. I literally had that thought, like, consciously. So it, I'm probably not the only gay guy who's thought, like, yeah, I could go out or, you know, I could, you know, stay home and, and chat on apps. I think the other, so in essence... The gay bar was the middleman. The gay bar was the agent. The gay bar was the gateway to you meeting other gay people. Once that was gone, you know, then gay bars started to drop off. And the sentiment that Andrew was mentioning was echoed by my conversation with Walt Odets, who I have also mentioned previously. He's a practicing psychologist and therapist, and he has been for 30 years practicing in the San Francisco Bay Area. And he's also written very, very extensively on the lives of gay men, especially living through the epidemic. And here's what he had to say about this. I mean, I, I don't have to tell you that technology is significantly why this has happened. Uh, when I was young, there was in Berkeley... I think the very first sort of gay and lesbian agency in Northern California called the Pacific Center. And I um, would go to, and Monday nights they had uh, meetings for gay men. They'd address different audiences, but they had meetings for gay men. And 100 to 200 people would show up every Monday night. And then we'd break down into discussion groups, uh, be six or eight groups. And... uh, I made connections there that I still have. I have four or five very close friends whom I met in in that context. People don't have that anymore. I think the Pacific Center, which is still running, uh, no longer holds those events because no one shows up. People are too busy on their phones. And I know that around here, meaning the East Bay as well as San Francisco, that one can walk into a gay bar and there, there can be eight or ten people sitting at the counter, and they're all looking at their phones. They're not actually talking to each other. So I think that there's, I, I, I think that the benefit of meeting someone in person and having a conversation uh, is very important in making connection and, and emotional attachment. That the the phone apps, uh, you know, is one example. Don't uh, don't don't really provide that opportunity. See a photograph of someone, and a small list of statistics is very different from sitting with someone, seeing how they speak, seeing their posture, how they move. All of that's an entirely different experience. It you know it would be the difference between let's say looking up the specifications of a car, you know how fast it'll go, and 
how many inches tall it is and all of that. The difference between that and driving the car and seeing how you feel when you're driving the car. And I think that kind of drives home the point. There really is this kind of entirely different experience between actually going out and meeting people and meeting people online. But I think that they are both useful. And I think that if there's some way to kind of blend them together, which we'll get to later, that would be really, really useful for the queer community. Moving on to kind of a different phenomenon that is also partly to blame for the decline of queer spaces is gentrification. So if you're unfamiliar with gentrification, it's basically the process by which older, poorer inner city areas are inhabited by people with more capital who move in and they buy property and invest in quote unquote restoring the area, which basically raises the prices of rent as well as business rents, everything like that, leading to the displacement of the original inhabitants of that area. And the interesting thing is, is that Gay Village actually arose from gentrification in the first place. So cities played an emancipatory role kind of as a sanctuary in attracting rural and suburban gays and lesbians during something that's dubbed the Great Gay Migration that occurred between the 60s to the 80s, and it still was kind of occurring even up to the 2000s. Basically during this time, queerness became associated with cultural capital, which is partly in thanks to Richard Florida, who is a professor at the University of Toronto, and he had this theory of the creative class. And to attract the creative class, you have to rank really high on something he created called the Gay Index, which is basically how accepting you are of gays. And from this theory, as well as just kind of the culture associated with queerness during this time, these gay villages really did become cultural hubs that sparked interest from both more affluent gays and straights. And that kind of began the process of the current gentrification that we see. So where corporations and non-queer people are basically moving into the village and further upgrading housings and amenities, forcing the original inhabitant, well, the, uh, the second inhabitants, I guess, so the people that moved in originally during the Great Gay Migration. And there's actually a term that geographers use to describe kind of the new gentrification that's happening now, and uh, they've dubbed the people that are doing the gentrification as super gentrifiers, because it's at really an unprecedented rate. This upgrading, this so-called upgrading, is pricing out queer people who have lived there for years or even decades. And while gentrification created villages, it could also lead to their decline. And many queer people cannot afford to live in the village. And that's having a ripple effect across businesses as they lose clients, they lose patrons, and eventually businesses will just shutter their doors. But it's also led to what some people have called the straightening of the gay village, where basically queer spaces are becoming non-queer, where straight cis people consume queer space as a commodity. So, you know, queerness is in right now. Everyone watches RuPaul's Drag Race. It's like... Everyone wants to go see a drag show. So for instance, there's a really, really famous drag bar here in Montreal called uh, Cabaret Mado, and Luc Provost, the owner, said that straight men are common, and here's a quote, they used to come here to make fun of us, but more and more they come here and they talk to the manager and they say, we're a bunch of guys for a bachelor party, do you think that Mado can make fun of our friend? That kind of exemplifies it, right? Like it's not really a queer space anymore if a bunch of straight people are there for a bachelor party. And he also said that LGBTQ people have definitely become a minority in the Cabaret Mado. Here's another quote. When I started, it was a little bit more gay. Now I would say it's probably 80% heterosexual girls. And that's a pretty good just sentence about what's happening to the villages is that 
Right now, they primarily serve as tourist destinations and basically sites to consume queer culture. But Amin Gaziani, who is a UBC professor, uh, suggests that queer neighborhoods are actually moving more towards being centers for gay-oriented businesses and away from being hubs for the entire community. And here's a quote from him that I think is a perfect analogy. Much like how suburban car dealerships can often be found lined up next to each other on a highway, gay bars will stay clustered together even if the neighborhood's LGBTQ residents disperse. And that's a really kind of insightful thing is that you can have people moving out of the villages and you can have a certain number of bars closing, but there will still be kind of a concentration that will stay clustered and still kind of act as some type of gay village. But again, part of the reason for this move away from being hubs for the entire community to something that's kind of just um, more based on business is the fact that gay villages and neighborhoods are becoming increasingly and extremely expensive to live in. And that includes Montreal. So in Montreal, the village here, there's basically a bunch of new condos that are constantly being built. And I was just looking through some of the listings. And for example, I found a three bedroom condo, which is around $700,000. And that is pretty expensive for Montreal. But then I also saw some listings for the village that went up to 1.5 to 2 millions, which is also very, very expensive. But as a more extreme example, the perfect example of this type of gentrification is actually in San Francisco. So the average price of a single family home in the Castro gay village in San Francisco is more than $2 million US. So really unfathomable to me, but that gives you an idea of kind of the super gentrification, like taken to the most extreme example. And another example of this is actually in Seattle as well. So Seattle and San Francisco have had a booming tech industry that has really led this gentrification as people that have a lot of money basically come into the city to work. But in Seattle, nearly every city neighborhood has had an increased concentration of gay and lesbian residents from 2000 to 2012, except for the Capitol Hill neighborhood, which actually saw a 23% decrease. So essentially, queer residents were priced out and outnumbered as thousands of new housing units were built in response to the tech industry. And the new residents that basically moved into the village and across the city were mainly straight and mainly male. But another factor in this decline and kind of this movement could be the increasing acceptance of queer people that just basically leave to other areas of the city because they don't really feel like they need the village anymore. While the media and many academics are quick to pin the blames just on grinder and gentrification, there are of course a wide range of other factors that are playing into the decline of queer spaces. So for instance, we have the rising acceptance of queer people just generally. And the thing is, is that I'm not saying that this is a bad thing. I mean, of course, the rising acceptance of queer people in urban areas and just in the global north more generally is of course a great thing. Its progression is amazing. But it is unfair to pin all the blame on grinder and gentrification. And this positive of the rising acceptance of queer people does have a negative when it comes to queer spaces. It is contributing to the decline of queer spaces, especially in the Global North's urban centers. Kind of the, the main movement is that the rising acceptance of queer people has led them which most often, I, I say queer, but most often that just means, for this instance, it means privileged, white, specifically gay men, to accept kind of an assimilationist view 
It's often also called post-gay or post-mo attitudes, where basically they don't think that their queer identity matters anymore. So they don't feel like, oh, you know, it's not part of me. Like it's, you know, just this one facet of my life. Like it doesn't really matter. Like I'd much prefer other, um, like the other aspects of my privileged identity. That's pretty much what this kind of assimilationist view has. And kind of going along with that is the feeling that queer spaces and gay villages also don't matter anymore. And so with this, many queer people don't actually feel the need to live in queer areas or in gay villages anymore. And then they just move to other areas of the city because acceptance isn't like physically bounded to an area anymore like it was, say, in the 80s or the 90s. So again, Professor Gaziani, the professor at the University of British Columbia, has basically referred to this new pattern as cultural archipelagos, where there are now smaller pockets of queer space spread throughout urban areas. And there actually is population data to support this. So besides what was happening in Seattle, um, how there was kind of that net decrease of people that lived in the gay village, but a net increase in queer people that lived in every other neighborhood of the city, there is pretty good research that shows that queer people are becoming more and more dispersed throughout cities, but also in the suburbs and even in rural areas as well. Um, But an article that Gaziani is quoted in argues that old famed gayborhoods are actually probably going to become watered down versions of their former selves, and the political clout, the services, and the opportunities that these spaces offer could be diminished. And in this article, they interviewed an artist from New York City who has basically protested against gentrification and the decline of gay villages. And he said the following, Where do we go now? The old ways of organizing and defending ourselves are being changed. What are the new strategies? And this really is an important concern. These sites have served as a way of organizing the queer community, um, whether that's through the Stonewall riots and the resulting Gay Liberation Front or any other type of queer movement. They really have started in these queer spaces, and that's why they part of the reason why they are so vital. But one thing that the post-gay attitude holders gloss over is the difference in acceptance between certain areas. And Walt gave a perfect example of this. So here he is again. I know there's an increased level of acceptance in the U.S. Of course, it's all getting worse with the Trump business. Um, But you talk to people in Manhattan, let's say, and they're very surprised that there's any problem with being gay. It's okay in Manhattan. And then um, these are are well-educated families. They read the New York Times. They read the New York Review of Books. And they wonder why I'm so concerned about it. Mm-hmm. And I say, well, why don't you just go out to Staten Island and have a look around? <laughs> Staten Island's a whole different culture. And it's, it's right there. It's, you know, it's part of New York City. It, and we have that here. I mean, San Francisco is one thing. Berkeley is Another thing, in Berkeley, you can just be anyone you want to be, and no one pays any attention. I was in the bank a while ago, standing in line for the teller, and there's a guy standing in there in his underwear. No one was paying any attention. I mean, it doesn't make any difference here. But if I drive 20 minutes east to uh, to towns uh, that are out towards the Sacramento Valley, it's a whole different story. You could you could get killed for kissing your boyfriend on the street. So post-gay or post-mo or assimilationist, however you want to call it, queer people 
argue that we should just fit into straight society or straight culture or heteronormative expectations. Um, and this actually has an academic term. It's called homonormativity. So heteronormativity, homonormativity. And homonormativity basically describes the assumption that queer people want to be a part of the dominant mainstream heterosexual culture and the way in which our society rewards those who do so. So basically identifying them as most worthy and deserving of visibility and rights. So for example, gay marriage only really benefits those who are most visible within the queer community and other battles or other issues are kind of sidelined so that queer people can kind of fit into the heteronormative idea of marriage. But many of these assimilationist queer people argue those who are too gay or who are too queer are branded as being too radical and that this is actually working against the collective good of all queer people. But here's the thing, is that queer people have very, 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 very different life experiences than straight cis people. And I think that that merits separate queer spaces to not only foster these life experiences, but to also talk about them as well and talk about them with other queer people who have experienced the same thing as you. And while some people who subscribe to the assimilationist view see queer spaces as unnecessary, that is such a privileged view. And I've asked those people to think about trans people, non-binary folks, lesbians, and queers of color. And these spaces provide crucial ways of connecting queers together, especially those who may have nowhere else to go. There has been a shift in what queer spaces look like to address this. So for example, there's a party, a monthly party here in Montreal called Moonshine. It happens basically every Saturday after the full moon. I know it sounds very Montreal. It is a little bit more underground, but the crowd tends to be much more diverse than the rapidly straightening clubs at the village with a wide range of people who don't neatly fit into gender and sexuality binaries. The importance of these spaces was actually highlighted by a DJ who plays at a similar event here in Montreal. And here's what they had to say. There's a reason we keep coming back to queer spaces. As long as we are still being oppressed in our day-to-day lives, there's always going to be a need for that healing effect of being around people that share that experience. And this was actually echoed by Walt as well. Here's what he had to say. Again, I talk about it so much in the book about sort of discovering oneself and finding authentic lives. And I think those authentic lives need some significant amount of interaction with other gay people. I have a lot of straight friends. I'd say I have maybe more straight friends than gay friends. But I know that I experience a different if I a difference. If I go uh, I, I usually have dinner with friends on Thursday through Sundays. And if I go for a week with having those dinners just with straight people, I know I feel a certain deficit internally, a certain emotional loss. Uh, there's, it's, it's simply, uh, it's a different perspective. It's a different life. You know, the, um, and, and I'm, I'm not going to go off into this issue of the epidemic to any great extent, but there, there are people my age who lived through the epidemic, which was an extraordinary event, something you didn't know anything personally about, can't have, you can't have. And uh, I, I met a, a guy, when I was working on the book, I was interviewing a lot of people, and including a lot of young people, but also older ones who had lived through the epidemic. And I 
was at a fundraising sort of thing and I, there was a guy sitting at the end of the table and I looked at him and I knew simply from looking at him that he and I had something in common, something important. And I thought to myself, what is that? And I thought, well, I can see on his face that he's been around the same block I've been around. And so the real takeaway from this is that gathering queer people in physical spaces fosters unexpected encounters where people can't be filtered out by stats like on an app. And they also provide a place for the queer community to raise awareness of issues that might affect us, to hold fundraisers, or to host events for queer causes and organizations. Kind of moving on to the future of queer spaces or the adaptation of queer spaces to kind of a more modern audience, the jury is still kind of out on whether Grindr could actually constitute a new type of queer space. Some people are like, oh yeah, for sure it's a queer space. Some people are totally against the idea that Grindr could be a queer space. But one thing that is really important to recognize is that it is overwhelmingly becoming the primary way that queer men as well as others meet. And here's what Andrew had to say about this. Whether or not we call these places queer spaces, because obviously they don't exist in a physical space the way a coffee shop does, um, there are still places where queer men are meeting each other and interacting. So, and, you know, and although I haven't really seen data on it, anecdotally, I will interact with more queer men on apps than I do in the real world. So right. it's a de facto queer space however we label it, you know, and, or what is our definition of space or what is our definition of queer or what is our, you know what I mean? Like we, so we can label it in an academic context, but I would assert men are, you know, queer men are interacting with each other, at least in terms of numbers, more on apps than any other, uh, physical space. So it's, it's a de facto queer space because of that. And the thing is, is that what Andrew's saying is true. Just from statistics that I kind of mentioned earlier, Grindr does play a huge role in how queer men and others interact. But some modern physical spaces have started to emerge in the past few years that incorporate, I guess, traditional queer community spaces into rapidly changing gay villages or neighborhoods. So, for example, in Montreal, there's a bathhouse called the 456. It was torn down for a condo development, but there was a negotiation between the owners of that bathhouse and the condo that basically reincorporated the bathhouse into the new condo that was built on the same site. And something similar is happening in Toronto. In Toronto, there's a new condo building proposal that's going up at the corner of Church and Wellesley. Uh, Church and Wellesley is basically the main intersection for the gay village in Toronto. And the condo building is actually going to include a community center and meeting spaces for the queer community on, I think it's the bottom two or three floors. And it's also going to include a large, adaptable public indoor-outdoor amphitheater. Uh, So really interesting. We'll see if this is actually going to be useful for the queer community. These are just some ideas. I don't really know what they're going to be moving forward and if they're actually going to be successful queer spaces. That remains to be seen. And so by focusing on building permanent community centers in gay villages or neighborhoods, they can basically, these community centers can act as a permanent heart to the village and basically keeping it alive. 
um, providing services to a wide range of people that basically make sure that the village remains a spot of importance for queer people, uh, even in the face of gentrification and the face of uh, kind of the decline of queer spaces. Having these community centers act as a heart of the village will keep people coming because of the services that they offer are really vital. And there's this whole other realm of digital queer spaces, and that's besides Grindr. So for example, there's a website called Meetup, which is basically a site to find and join interest groups online. And then basically you meet that interest group in a physical space. Um, but the site does have, it's not specific towards queer people, but it does have a large number of LGBTQ oriented groups. So I was just browsing through the Montreal site and some of them included an LGBT board game group, a group for LGBT parents, a group called Gikers, which is for gay hikers and bikers, as well as a queer book club called Queer Reads, an asexual meetup group, and a group called Queer Tech that I actually found this really cool, partners with tech companies in Montreal to provide workshops to employers about welcoming a gender and sexuality diversity in kind of a more corporate setting. Um, and I'll actually put the link to all of those in the description. But a key underlying factor that is crucial is that these queer spaces are such an important part of our history. If Stonewall, I know I mentioned this earlier, but if Stonewall, which was one of the only gay bars in New York City that accepted and served trans people, homeless youth, and people of color, if it never existed, would the queer rights movement be at the same place it is today? Could Meetup, for instance, facilitate a protest? If you have any thoughts on this, I'd really like to hear them. So again, feel free to send me an email. Hopefully this was able to give an overview of some of the challenges that gay villages and queer spaces more generally are facing. But I really do want to hear from you. What solutions do you think would address these challenges? How can we push back against the changes that are happening? How does technology fit into this entire picture? So again, let me know on Twitter, Instagram, or by email. Thanks for listening, everyone. I want to give a huge thank you before I leave to both Walt Odets and Andrew London for speaking to me for this podcast. They were super, super helpful, and we definitely will be hearing from them for future episodes as well. But again, thank you so much. And just to give everyone a bit of heads up kind of for the future of the podcast, the podcast will be on hiatus until the beginning of August when part two will be released, and part two will be released to align with Montreal Pride. And part two will have a pretty personal episode on loneliness and mental health challenges in the queer community, and another episode on recent efforts to enter queer spaces into heritage law. So make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or follow the podcast on Spotify, uh, but we're also on Google Podcast as well, or you can just go onto the website, which is hosted on Simplecast. So it's queer here, queer there .simplecast.com. And also please don't forget to rate the podcast as well. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queer Here, Queer There. As always, feel free to reach out with any comments, suggestions, or if you just want to gossip. The podcast email is qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. So again, that's qhqtpodcast at gmail.com. But also feel free to message me on Instagram at nopo.png or follow me on Twitter at noahdpowers. This podcast is written, produced, and edited by Noah Powers with support from the Samuel Center for Social Connectedness. 
The cover art for this podcast was designed and painted by my extremely talented friend, Morgan Davis, and you can find more of her work on her Instagram at morgandavisart and her Redbubble, both of which are linked in the description of this podcast. Queer Here, Queer There would like to acknowledge the generous support of Taking It Global, the Government of Canada, and Canada Service Corps for funding this project through their Rising Youth Grant. The music for this podcast is Sunset by ESCP, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Public License.